This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft, that's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T, and you are listening to episode 66. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rkraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the Microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Connor Haley. He is the founder and managing partner of AltaFox Capital Management, a long short hedge fund based in Fort Worth, Texas. Connor also is currently the number one ranked investor on microcapclub.com. Having just launched AltaFox this year, I thought this would be a great time to share his experience, why he started AltaFox, and his microcap investing philosophy. As you will hear in this episode, Connor is very focused on understanding what his downside risk can be when assessing a potential investment, as well as making sure that it is a high-quality business. These metrics are more of an art than a science, and the goal for this episode is to understand how Connor breaks them down. So with that, Connor... Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. Thanks, Bobby. Glad to be here. It's great to have you on. And so to get started here, uh, I've been really looking forward to this conversation. And uh, again, to start off, what's your background? Sure. Uh, let's see. I, I grew up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, I was originally a, a, ch- a chess player when I was a kid, uh, fairly strong player. At one point, the highest rated player in Texas for my age group. Sort of fast forward to high school, though, uh, I discovered investing and sort of just fell in love with it. And um, that sort of became my pr- primary intellectual pursuit. Uh, you know, was reading a book a week, it seemed like uh, Joel Greenblatt, Warren Buffett, Peter Lynch, sort of the classics. Um, from there, I started spending time on, you know, mostly retail oriented investment sites like the street.com and the Motley Fool, spending a couple hours a day, you know, reading about investments, researching investments. Um, and was, was really just learning a lot and loved it the more I learned more about investing. Um, sort of fast forward to uh, you know, senior year of high school, I ended up actually uh, deciding to intern at both of those firms. Uh, I was able to talk my, talk my way in internships. So I spent uh, roughly half a year at both the street.com in New York City, Jim Kramer's company, um, and about six months at The Motley Fool in Alexandria, Virginia, um, which is the Molly Fool run by the, the Gardner brothers or founded by them, uh, which is also an amazing experience. Um, you know, from there, I, uh, a- after that, I went to Harvard. Uh, I, sp- I spent uh, every summer, you know, working for various investment firms, worked for a couple of different, you know, s- small cap focused uh, hedge funds, as well as Goldman Sachs' special situations group. From there, I joined a long short hedge fund in New York City after graduation. Uh, I was there about three and a half years. I recently um, left and have started my own my own company, Alta Fox Capital, based in Texas, to focus on small and microcap investments primarily. So, what was the initial thing that got you excited about investing? You know, was it a friend that told you about it? Your parents? I mean, what what was it that was the spark that like I I want to look more into this? You know, I, I was always interested in it. I think the thing that uh, probably probably sparked it was I think my freshman year I took an economics elective and you know we had a stock market game and it was like virtual trading versus you know your own school and other people and um, you know I, I started trying to do research to to win this competition and, and realized I knew nothing about it um, and, and and but realized that I wanted to know sort of how how to invest successfully, how to research investments wanted to understand you know all, all these aspects of the uh, of researching a company that I didn't at the time understand, and that really led, you know, me starting a, a small personal account and, and and really trying to learn everything I could about investing. 
And that was freshman year of high school or college? That was freshman year of high school. Dang. I wish I went to your high school. That would have been, that would have been fun. Uh, so, so then how'd you get your start investing in, uh, in microcap stocks? Well, I think from the very beginning, even though I didn't know a lot about, you know, investing, I did realize that in many ways I was very disadvantaged, you know, versus large hedge funds, for example, you, you don't have to be an expert in investing to understand that, you know, many of these investment firms have a lot more resources and, and, um, you know, <laughs> Uh, just a lot more things at their disposal when they're researching a company. So if I was trying to pick, you know, uh, you know, large caps versus hedge fund down the street, I'm probably at a big disadvantage as a high schooler who doesn't know that much. So I was obsessed with this idea of edge in investing, and you know, it led me down a couple different paths. Uh, you know, originally I started in high school uh, a website called um, HighSchoolStockPicks.com. Uh, or sorry, collegestockpicks.com, which was basically geared towards you know crowdsourcing millennial buying habits into actionable investment ideas, and um, you know it, it was an interesting concept, and we actually came up with some really good ideas. We were early in in several um, in, in several really successful names, but I soon discovered actually most high school and college students don't care at all about investing. So uh, the, the whole premise behind the model was a little bit flawed. Um, you know, from there, I um, ended up gravitating towards microcaps, small microcaps, because I realized that, look, there's no research coverage on these names most of the time. Um, you know, the large hedge funds are restricted from buying it. And a lot of the investors I was reading about and studying their careers um, started in small caps and really built their Portfolio. I mean, Joel Greenblatt um, was doing small, obscure spinoffs. Um, you know, e even David Einhorn. I think his first investment he talks about in his book was like a sub fifty million sort of um, post bankruptcy retailer. Even Warren Buffett, who's known for investing, you know, um, billions of dollars in these large, you know, M and A deals. His best returns were in his partnership days when he was managing what today would be considered small and micro caps. So, you know, that that really just sparked my interest. And I knew that there was a niche here that if I really explored it and was willing to work hard, could potentially result in, in an edge. Mm -hmm. And so did you was there more stuff that you did also in college that that really sparked your interest too, or, or kind of helped you develop your investing thesis, which, you know, we're about, we're going to go over shortly. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, co coming off of the gap year that I took working at the street.com and the Motley Fool, I knew a hundred percent exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to be uh, an investor and I wanted to get sort of to a hedge fund as quickly as possible into a risk taking seat. So I was trying to sort of teach myself all the skills that I could in order to accelerate that process and really ideally avoid sort of the traditional banking route if, if possible. Um, and so, you know, I joined uh, freshman year, the Harvard Financial Analyst Club, which was sort of a great investment uh, un undergrad led investment club at Harvard, met a bunch of really great friends there and very knowledgeable people, uh, participated in several investment competitions. Um, and it, you know, my, my interest in investing really just multiplied from there. And, and then I spent every summer working for, for hedge funds, you know, just trying to learn more about investing and advance sort of my, my knowledge and skills. And, um, so yes, it, it certainly, it certainly multiplied, uh, while I was in college. And you also wrote a blog, right? While you were in college. I did. Yeah. So after, uh, uh, yeah, after college stock picks kind of folded, I decided I would, in, in, instead of trying to sort of run a community, I'd just focus on my own ideas and put them out there and see what people thought. So I started a blog called TheVariantView.com, and I primarily wrote on sort of small, I profiled small and micro cap investments, um, you know, had had a pretty good, pretty good track record, had some successful investments and you know I never got a big following I wasn't marketing it it was really just more for myself to to uh, be forced to uh, you know distill my investments down to a few key thesis points put them out there get feedback and sort of track it over time mm -hmm. and then shortly after you then well when was the time that you joined the microcap club because I'm not sure if many people know on here but you happen to be currently the number one ranked member on there 
That, that is correct. Uh, it was sometime in college. I don't remember exactly. It was probably my junior year of college. I was doing so much microcap investing and I stumbled upon the site and it seemed like a great, you know, great community and great idea. And it has been, and I've been, you know, blessed to be a part of it. I've gotten to know many of the members and, um, yeah, it's, it's been a great experience. Cool. So, you know, I want to now get into your, your investing philosophy itself. You know, let, let's start off with, with an overview, you know, what, what's your approach? Sure. Well, I, I'd, I'd start by saying, you know, I, I think my approach is probably fairly different than the usual sort of small and micro cap investor. And the reason I say that is, you know, my perspective, and I don't want to get in trouble with your listeners here, but my perspective is most small and micro cap investments um, or, or businesses rather are low quality businesses. Uh, most small and micro cap management teams are relatively low quality ma- management teams. That being said, the reason I, you know, focus most of my attention in this area is because there is a minority of small and micro cap businesses that are very high quality businesses. And if you're able to find those, even if they're a, you know, a small minority in the overall pie, you're able to make really fantastic returns. And so that, that's sort of my overarching approach and view towards small and micro caps. And that influences a lot of, a lot about how I think about you know, structuring my investment process. So, you know, I would say most small and micro cap investors that I, that I speak to are focused on the upside. They're focused on what's most exciting. How can this go up, you know, 10 X and, you know, micro caps can be very exciting. You know, they tend to be less, less liquid. They can go, they can have big moves, but in, in my opinion, what you're trying to do is find the really high quality businesses and limit the downside because if you can limit the downside for a small cap company that's a high quality business there's always a good upside story to be told but if you can if you can really generate you know and find a margin of safety in your investment that's where i think you you can have really fantastic returns so that that's sort of the overall approach but i'm happy to sort of dive in in, into more specifics if you'd like let's do it let's take the plunge man let's (laughs) all right go in let's do it so you know i think about uh investing in really four parts. So you have the search process. Uh, you know, how do you look for investments? How do you uh, create a funnel for which you spend your time? Uh, that's the sort of the first process. The second is the valuation process. How do you go about determining intrinsic value? Third is sizing. And then fourth is monitoring. How do you, which, which really means how do you, um, you know, watch your investments, make sure the thesis is on track. Um, and, and sort of adjust your sizing over time. Um, it's my belief that the majority of superior returns, and this is you know specific to small and micro caps, come from having a better search process. And therefore, that's where the majority of my attention should be focused. And the reason I say that is, I think the market is fairly efficient. Not efficient, but fairly efficient. What I mean by that is, if you put a thousand smart guys or gals in a room and ask them to look at the exact same company for a long period of time, give them the same information, the consensus will probably be a reasonably fair assessment of intrinsic value. Therefore, I believe that the most important question in the investment process is, you know, why why might this stock be mispriced? And, and really, I mean, that, that whole concept of edge and why might something be mispriced is how I ended up you know, gravitating towards towards micro caps, and because micro small and micro caps by themselves already have an embedded reason why they may be mispriced, because the large funds that have you know a ton of resources can't look at can't look at them. It doesn't make sense. So you you already off the bat have a reason. You know, another great thing about you know looking for small and micro caps is if you do find those high quality growth businesses. You know, they tend to be earlier in their cycle. So you can get to high quality businesses early and they can hold on for the long term. So uh, in terms of search process, I'm trying to find things that, um, you know, the market will have a tough time valuing. And, and you know, I got to take one step back from there because to understand what the market uh, might have a tough time valuing, you have to understand how the market typically values a company and and the traditional route and i'd say this is true you know 90 percent of the time if you pull a research report on on any company the traditional approach is forecast financials for one to two years out apply an earnings or ebitda multiple based on comparable companies 
that's that's how almost all research reports are done and there's a reason for that you know it's it's a it's a shortcut simplified way of approaching valuation and you know it tends to be a reasonable approach for for most companies however there are some problems with it uh, you know for one you know forecasting only one to two years out may work for sort of stable firms but for companies experiencing high growth you know currently in an investment cycle or cyclical these short-term forecasts will have little insight into intrinsic value. Um, secondly, you know, earnings and EBITDA are not free cash flow, can be easily manipulated. And then finally, you know, comparable using comparable multiples has several flaws, uh, including, you know, entire sector can be overvalued. And, and then secondly, there's often no great comp set. So investors sort of settle for the next best thing. So um, w- with that sort of framework, we can, we can reasonably conclude the market is likely to be pretty good at valuing companies that have little change, you know, they have stable earnings. So capitalizing the earnings stream is likely a reasonable method for valuation, or they're widely followed for a long period of time. You know, the more people looking at investment, I think the more likely it is to be fairly, fairly valued. There are exceptions to that, but I think it's a general general rule. Um, and, and in the long run, Mr. Market tends to get it right. And then finally, you know, a large number of highly similar co- companies or, or comparables um, you know, if, there, if there's a lot of competitors out there who've traded a long time that have little change, that's probably going to be a reasonable way of thinking about valuation. Um, so with, with that sort of long-winded framework, what companies is the market maybe not that great at valuing? How can we use that to structure our funnel to find potentially mispriced securities? Um, we basically take the opposite of that. So we find, you know, I, I look for companies that are undergoing significant and rapid change. That could include new management, a new business line, a complex set of assets, you know, multiple business segments with different growth and quality characteristics, sort of some of the part stories. Um, it could be companies that, you know, the market hasn't had a long time to analyze, being spinoffs, you know, po- post-bankruptcy reorgs, recent IPOs, uh, you know, companies without any good publicly traded comparables, uh, companies that are poorly followed, which, you know, small and micro caps right off the bat fall in that category. And then finally, you know, companies with unusually long profitable growth runways or are highly cyclical with, you know, these multi-year cycles. So, you know, th- those are categories that I really try to focus my my search process on. And, you know, small and if you can combine multiple elements of them together, uh, it's even better. You know, if you can find, you know, a spinoff that's small with multiple yeah, business segments with complex assets with the new management. You, you know, it, it, some of some of the times um, those are the best investments that that you can find, um, and, and they're certainly worth your research time because even if they're not undervalued, they're they're potentially mispriced. So, so Connor, you you know, uh, one follow up question I would have to this search process because it's it's really quite detailed. You know, you're looking for a lot of different things that will fit. You know, at least this aspect of your thesis. You know, so where, how do you go out and find these ideas? I mean, do you have certain websites you go to? Do you have a, a long list? You know, do you set aside time every day to say, hey, I'm going to go out and research at least, you know, two, three companies every single day, may not even be investable ones, but just so I can put them on my watch list because they fit my criteria from my screener. You know, how, what does that look like? Sure. It's a couple different methods. You know, one is quantitative screens. So, you know, I, I have various screens that I've set up and tweaked over the years to find high quality businesses. Um, and, and, you know, I, I guess I'd share one anecdote. I think in this, these screens are particularly tailored in, if I'm looking for small and micros for small and micro caps. And one way I, one example of a way I might tailor a screen is, you know, small and micro cap companies, because they are uh, just earlier in their, in their growth cycle, uh, they often haven't scaled yet. And I say yet because if you find companies that are in the process of scaling, that's a, that's a real opportunity. So, you know, one way, for example, that uh, I sometimes look for, this is just one example, for high quality companies in small and micro cap areas, you know, I move a little bit higher up on the income statement for high quality. What I mean by that is you can't look for, you know, you know high returns on equity uh, if a company doesn't have generate net income. Uh, you know, you can't look for, you know, high EBITDA margins if a company is not generating EBITDA. However, often what I found is if you, you can identify high quality small caps that are scaling by looking instead all the way to gross profits. 
So find companies, for example, that have you know high gross profits to tangible assets. They may not be earning any money right now. However, there's a potential to be highly profitable if they can scale the rest of their operating expenses, SG&A. Um, so you know, sometimes you can find these interesting companies which you know the evidence is there if you look deep enough that these will be great, you know, high quality companies at scale. They're just not at scale yet. So if you can get to them early, it'll be obvious. You know, when everyone else is running screeners, when the market cap's a lot higher, there's institutional coverage. So, you know, that, that's just one example. But to answer your original question, one, quantitative screening, and then two, you know, having a really good network. So I've been fortunate to meet a lot of great uh, invest, you know, investors um, over the years and, you know, through investment communities and also personal relationships. I'm talking with people all the time, you know, about what their best ideas are, bouncing ideas off of each other. And, you know, that can be a, that can be a great way um, you know, to, to look at more ideas than you could yourself. So, okay. Two more, two more follow-up questions or maybe I might ask them together. Let's ask them together. So one, one thing I've always been curious to is, you know, I, I think some people maybe think like, all right, if they're looking at their quantitative screens, you know, how often do you check your screens? You know, how often are you going on and looking to see, uh, what companies will then are, are now fitting that? Is it like around earnings time? As soon as all the data is updated, you know, how often is that? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, there's no you know hard and fast rule that I have. Uh, I, I, I tend to you know basically in Excel, I've got a sheet of my priority of names, and anytime I'm doing research, I'm reshuffling that priority. I might be deleting a company from the list that's no longer interesting because I've done the re research and I don't think it's you know a worth worthwhile investment or I could be pushing things up you know because of a conversation I have with you know it could be someone in the industry, it could be a friend, et cetera. But I'm always managing sort of this long list of, of names and, and this priority list. And so in general, I probably run um, you know my, my screens, you know, I would say between monthly and quarterly, you know, doing it after after companies announce quarterly results makes a lot of sense. I'd probably do it a little bit more often than that just to make sure I'm not missing anything. But somewhere in that range, I think, is, is a reasonable way, at least I've found, to go about it. Mm -hmm. And then another question regarding your, your example when it comes to, uh, you said about, uh, you know, even a company is not generating net income if they have high gross profits and, and tangible assets. You know, what's the next bit of information that you then are looking for to make it to make that potential investment interesting to you? You know, is it following yeah. up on the industry? You know, what what is it? Yeah. So uh, and, and just to clarify what, what, what I meant was, you know, high gross profits relative to tangible assets. So what ah. you really want is, you know, a company generating significant amount of gross profits on very little assets at all, very little tangible assets at all, because that means it's asset light. And if it's asset light, it has the potential to grow without much, you know, reinvestment in the business. And those are the best businesses. I mean, if you can find an asset light business growing really quickly, uh, that doesn't require a lot of reinvestment, even if it's not er er earning much today, it likely will as it scales. Um, so, but, so I find, you know, if I find a company that, and that's just one example of a screen that, that I might run, uh, but you know, if I find a company that's interesting, um, and we can use this, you know, gross profits to tangible assets criteria as an example, um, what would be the next steps? Well, one, I'd want to understand the business model and the industry. You know, I, I think one thing that I've, you know, changed about my philosophy over time is I place a lot more emphasis on the industry than I used to. Uh, it's really easy to get so sucked in, into a company and, uh, you know, learn every single in and out about the company and decide, look, this is the best company in the industry and, and get really excited and drink the Kool-Aid on your own investment. Uh, but then you step back and, you know, you realize, well, it may be the best company in an industry, but the industry may really be unattractive. Mm. And you don't you don't generally want to invest in those situations because, you know, the way I think about it is roughly 50% of a stock's move will be, you know, stock specific, roughly 50% will be industry specific. And, you know, that'll vary based on the industry. But, um, you know, you, you want to make sure you have a good industry structure. So, you know, there are a lot of different types of industry structures. So, you know, the best would be a monopoly, right? There aren't that many, you know, monopolies that exist for very, you know, antitrust reasons. Um, the, the best would be sort of a, a duopoly um, or an oligopoly. You know, the next would be, and you often find this with, uh, 
you know, small cap names is a really fragmented industry. So you either want to own the industry <laughs> via monopoly, duopoly, or oligopoly, or you want to have a chance at owning the industry. And the only way you can have a chance at owning the industry is if it's sort of fragmented. Um, you know, of course, there are exceptions to all these, but that's generally how I think about it. Um, the, the worst would be, you know, an industry where a few players dominate, dominate it and you're sort of on the outside with no real prospect of, you know, becoming uh, one of those dominant players. So, you know, I, I look for the industry structure. I look for the management team and incentives. You know, in these small caps, if the management team isn't, owning shares, if they're not putting, you know, their money where their mouth is, then why should I? Why should I spend any more time on it? You know, it's really important to me to have, you know, management teams that believe in the business to put their own capital and their sort of compensation behind it. So that's another big thing um, and typically results in shareholders being treated a lot better than they otherwise would have. Um, you know, you're, you're analyzing the growth story. How sustainable is it? If it's a retail concept, how, you know, how attractive are the unit economics? You basically want to strip this business industry apart every way you can and try to understand what is the trajectory look like for the industry? What does the trajectory look like for the business? And how will shareholders be treated along the way? So, you know, it's, it's hard to give an exact roadmap without a specific company, but that's, that's, you know, roughly how, how I think about it. Right. And I feel like even then there's so many different roads you can take to finding that, you know, life changing investment that it's, it's not so much a clear road anyway, you know, you probably are doing a couple different zigs and zags until you hopefully eventually get there. Um, one more follow up. What's your sweet spot on, uh, management ownership? Um, how much do you think? Yeah. Know? yeah, it definitely depends on, you know, the size of the company, obviously, but, um, you know, for, I, I would say for, for small and, and micro caps, I mean, I, I typically want to see at least, at least 5%, you know, um, at least did that's, you say, that's not, did you say how much percent? 5%. 5%. Okay. Uh, that, that's not a hard and fast rule. It depends, you know, it's very situation specific, but you know, a, a potentially better way of looking at it is looking at, you know, how much compensation do they have tied to stock versus, you know, cash and, you know, what are the various, uh, you know, awards that they're paid uh, and what are the incentive and what are sort of the milestones they have to achieve. So there's no hard and fast rule, but in general, you know, if you analyze the situation, you should be able to conclude whether the management team cares enough about shareholders. And if, if they're in the same boat as, 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 as you or not, uh, because you, you want to make sure that if the business is successful, that, uh, everyone sort of benefits and the management team should benefit and the shareholders should benefit. What you don't want is the business to be successful and you're not successful because of bad incentives, um, or the business in the, or the industry is successful, but the business isn't because, you know, management just pays themselves and, and, and doesn't, you know, take the right steps for shareholders. So no hard and fast rule, but you know, if I had to give one, say 5% for small and micros. Mm -hmm. And another thing regarding management, you know, I know in the, in this search process, it sounds like you do a lot of your research before you even pick up the phone and talk to management. It, I, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, that, that's true. Okay. And then, so then for you, once you've done all this research and you've really looked at the business, you looked at the industry, you know, what are some of the qualities other than, you know, obviously incentives, making sure that, you know, they have skin in the game, you know, what are some of the other qualities that you look at in terms of management? Capital allocation, I think, is is top of the list. Mm -hmm. um, you know, making sure they, because uh, I think a lot of small and microcap uh, management teams don't really understand this, and you you see a lot of empire building and small and microcaps. You know, uh, I won't name any names, but I was talking to a microcap company uh, probably about a month ago, and you know, I'm talking about how the industry will evolve and trying to get their views, and you know, they're putting out a revenue goal five years from now, right? And that's like they're what they're trying to achieve. Well, you know, I don't really care what the revenue is in five years. I care about what the value of the company is. And there's a lot more to that than what the revenue is. And I care about dilution. I care about your margin structure. And this company was basically just trying to acquire its acquire its way to higher revenue five years from now. And, you know, that, that's just not a management team I want, I want to invest in. Um, I, I want managers who understand how value is created, are incentivized to drive it. Um, and, you know, have a similar mindset in terms of how they will allocate capital from the business. So, you know, you can ask questions like, okay, how do you think about stock buybacks versus M&A versus investing in the business? And look, good management teams should generally have an answer to that for, 
you know, what the returns on CapEx are, what the returns are on marketing dollars, what the returns are, you know, in, in M&A, um, you know, and this is all shaped by, again, the industry structure and, um, you know, where the business sits in that. But uh, you, you want to have a management team that sort of gets it along all those fronts. Mm-hmm. All right. So now we're, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to step two. <laughs> um, so... So, Connor, uh, tell me a little bit more about your valuation process. What happens then? Yeah. So, like I said earlier, I think search process is most important. So, I think that if you, you know, have a really good search process, the valuation part should be the easier part of the process. Doesn't mean it's easy, but it should be easier. What I mean by that is, you know, I don't necessarily believe in creating really complicated you know, investment models with a hundred different tabs in your spreadsheet uh, to figure out, okay, this stock is. 25% undervalued. Like that's just nothing. That's not something I would ever really do. And the reason is if I'm, if I have a good search process, the, the companies that, you know, end up surviving my, my research funnel should be ones that are fairly obviously undervalued. Now, you know, always things can happen and, you know, mistakes can be made, but they should jump off the page as being undervalued. Therefore, my valuation process is more about, you know, fine tuning how undervalued it is, assuming we're looking at a long, um, you know, and so I, when I do that, I like to focus on the key drivers, you know, three or four key drivers uh, at most, um, you know, because you really want to have uh, sort of the the 30,000 foot view of, is this a good business? Is this a good price? Um, that's something, you know, I learned a lot from Greenblatt and sort of reading his Columbia Business School notes and, and reading, you know, a lot of what, of what he's done is one of the greatest investors ever, but he, he thinks in very simple terms and he's able to convey his investing theses in very simple terms. Is it a good business? Is it a good price? You got you to gotta keep that in mind when you're doing valuation. So I like to focus on three or four key drivers. I like to generally have a bear, a base, and a bull case. You know, I probability weight them, but, you know, it's really uh, fancier sounding than it actually is. I'm just trying to understand revenue trajectory, margin trajectory, what, you know, what, what makes or breaks this model, what are the risks. And, and try to take a stab, but ideally, uh, the company is sort of jumping off the page to the point where, as undervalued, to the point where, you know, you could do a, a you know back of the napkin kind of valuation and feel pretty good about investing. Uh, you know, if it takes a, a really big spreadsheet to convince yourself it's undervalued, um, in, in, in my opinion, generally that's probably not that great of an investment. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you tend to focus on three or four key drivers. Can you just clarify what what those three or four are? Yeah, you know, it, it depends on the, um, you know, it depends on the business. But uh, you know, if it's a retail concept, for example, you're going to want to understand, okay, how many stores are they at now versus, you know, what the uh, maturation point is. You know, so so store openings would be one. You know, comp sales would be another, and then maybe sort of, you know, if it's like a franchise uh, system, for example, you know, core operating expenses would be another, and be pretty simple because franchisees have, fr- franchise companies have pretty simple cost structures. That could be like an example, but you want to have sort of, you know, a couple different revenue drivers. Uh, so it could be unit and price, could be, you know, number of stores, sales per store. It really depends on the business, but some re- a, a revenue driver, a couple revenue drivers, you know, an understanding of the cost structure, and then capital allocation, I would say, or, or sort of the, you know, how do they manage this cash over time? Are they paying dividends? Are they buying back stock? You know, are they creating value through M&A? How do you account for that in your valuation? Um, so yeah, it, it's hard to answer without a specific company, but that's that's a general framework. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to throw a phrase at you, and I'm just curious as to your opinion and maybe how this might fit into your valuation process. And the phrase is, misunderstood meaningful change. What does that mean to you? Misunderstood meaningful change. Yeah, um, it, to me, th- that sounds like a pretty exciting, you know, stock to, to, to research or situation to research because, um, you know, like I said earlier in, in sort of my search process, uh, you want to find things that are hard to value by sort of the market. And if something's misunderstood, could be for a variety of reasons, um, you know, it, it's more likely to be mispriced. And if there's meaningful change, it's more likely to be mispriced. Could be in either direction, but um, to me, m- you know, misunderstood, meaningful change. That's that's ripe for you know finding um, something that's really worth doing a lot of diligence on. Sort of dropping everything else and f- figure out what's going on here. Because who knows? It, this could be you know the the investment that makes your makes your year, makes the next two years. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Yeah. Because the reason I I asked is because you know I, it sounds like it, according to how you either in your search process and then getting right into the your valuation process is that you know you're once you've done all that due diligence on a potential name you're trying to set yourself up to be in the position where that might occur you know where right exactly no that, that that's exactly right you're trying to put yourself in these situations where um the market doesn't really know how to value it and you're there early um and you know, if you can consistently do that and you and you do sort of good research, I think you can uh, you put yourself in a good position to to outperform over time. Okay. So now, so now the next part of your process is uh, is sizing. You know, so can you explain what your your thought process is uh, in this step? Absolutely. You know, I think number one, you have to have discipline because. I've seen a lot of really great investors blow themselves up over the years by, you know, doing really great work but not having discipline in regards to sizing. And so I think it's really important to have a set of rules that you sort of adhere to, regardless of how excited you are about any investment. Um, so for me, you know, that's uh, between 15 to 20 percent max position at cost. In my fund, I generally have 15% uh, max position. And basically what that does is it says, look, no matter how excited you are about a name, you're never going to invest more than, say, 15% at cost. And I think it's really useful to have some types of um, rules with yourself. And you can have other rules as well in terms of how long you hold and, and things like that. But you need to understand yourself and you need to have discipline because uh, you can have a great investment career ruined by one investment if it's sized uh, in the wrong way. And, and I think having rules is, is important for that reason. So uh, number one is have discipline. Number two is, uh, you know, make your make your best investments, your 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 biggest um, your biggest holdings. You know, the, the stocks you have the most conviction on need to be sized uh, appropriately, uh, assuming you're adhering to your to your discipline. So, you know, I'm a big believer in, you know, always having a sense of where intrinsic value is. So I'm always updating sort of that number after every quarter and I'm adjusting size appropriately. You know, I, I don't trade a lot. Um, I tend to try to find high quality companies early and hold longer than anyone else. But, um, you know, I, I think if you if you're investing in high quality companies, you have discipline uh, in terms of what your max size is. And then you're always adjusting, not based on your emotion, but based on your fundamental research, whether it be quarterly earnings or conversations with management teams or people in the industry, you're, you're off to a really good start in terms of you know, adding value through sizing. Mm -hmm. And then what's your what's your kind of sweet spot, I guess, for how big, how many issues, ish, how many companies you have? Or we ask that. And, and yeah. Hold on real quick. So, so then what would you say is your, your sweet spot then for, uh, for your portfolio? How many in terms stocks? of, in terms of oh, how, many how many stocks? stocks. Yeah. yeah, sure. Um, you know, I, I think, I think on the long side, it's sort of a, uh, it's, you know, less than, less than 12, I'd, less than 12 to 15, I'd say, you know, ideally I'd have an even smaller number of full, you know, 15% positions, uh, because, you know, that's my max size and I have total conviction in a bunch of different companies. But in reality, you know, you don't always have killer ideas. Um, so it takes time to develop them. You might have one or two in your portfolio at a time, but not a whole portfolio of them. And so you're always you're always diligencing more and trying to sort of improve on your portfolio. So, you know, in general, I have, you know, b between you know, eight to eight to 12 positions and um, on the long side and, and I'm constantly sort of adjusting that based on, you know, my uh, my assessment of, of intrinsic value. Mm -hmm. So then in your, your final uh, step in your process that you mentioned earlier is, uh, is monitoring, you know, so what, yes. what does that look like? Absolutely. So, you know, this is uh, an area where I didn't, I didn't have a lot of experience before working for, you know, a large, a large hedge fund, but, you know, opened my eyes to this, you know, it, really what monitor, monitoring gets to is w when you buy a stock and you've done all the research and you feel good about it, the the work doesn't stop there and uh, it doesn't stop even for the next time they report earnings you know the, the work is ongoing you own that stock every day you're responsible for it and you know your job is to really go out and try to ha tr try to absorb the uh, the various data points that 
um, are correlated or, or come up, at, uh, you know, with an investment better than everyone else so that you are sort of the first to know uh, when something's changing. And that could be the thesis is off track. It could be the thesis is actually totally on track or outperforming expectations. But uh, so, so what this means in practice is, you know, you, you, it could be, you know, on a simple level, monitoring Google Trends, right, for a company, that, for a consumer-facing company, and trying to understand where their traffic's coming from and, and whether traffic's accelerating or, or decelerating. That's sort of a simple example. Um, sort of a, a more institutional example would be, you know, speaking to ex-employees at the company and, you know, trying to figure out whether your thesis is correct or poke holes in your own thesis. Um, could be speaking to suppliers, uh, speaking to current competitors, trying to figure out, you know, w- what is going on in the industry right now and, you know, um, is your thesis on track? So, you know, I think the monitoring process uh, is important because it, it relates to sizing as well. Uh, you know, as you monitor something, you, you're going to gain or lose conviction in your original thesis. That should be expressed in sizing. Um, and so I think it's, you know, it's, a, it's, it's an important fourth step. Mm-hmm. So you do quite a bit more than just catch up with management or their IR firm or whoever's representing the company. Absolutely. In, in most cases, absolutely. I mean, you know, and, and this will... Uh, you know, this will vary based on um, the investor because, look, the monitoring part can be pretty expensive. And this is one area where, you know, institutions can have an edge. But uh, again, there are a lot of easy things you can do to uh, monitor an investment that don't really cost any money at all. If it's, you know, a, a restaurant concept, go eat at all the restaurants, monitor their Yelp reviews, monitor how many reviews they have, what the average rating is, you know, track these things over time, create your own data sets that, that are free to create, you know, do whatever you can to monitor your investment to make sure the thesis is on track or not. Okay, so Connor, let me let me sum up a little bit here. So you let's let's say you found a let's let's go through a sample process of, of let's say you, you found a potential investment. So let's say you, you went through your search process, you did all of your due diligence, you did the valuation of it, it's hitting all your metrics, you then and now you're then looking at your portfolio, you see, okay, you know, how do I want to size into this position? And then you have your post um, uh, taking action. It, it, well, is it around the, the sizing part that you start to take action in the, in the company and size into that position? Or do you, do you then, do you wait after this, all four steps are, are done that you then take, start easing yourself into the position and at least part four is kind of always happening? Uh, yeah, part four is definitely always happening. You know, some of the, some of the stuff I described in part four is, part of the research process in some cases. Uh, sometimes more of it happens later, but it's always happening. You're always trying to monitor it the best way you can and, mm-hmm. and find creative data points. But so it's really, you know, um, company specific in terms of how it all unfolds. You know, sometimes I'll take a small starter position where I think something's really interesting and establish a small position and then do more work because, you know, the, the uh, threshold for how much work I have to do on a company is different for a 3% position than it is for a 15% position. Very different. You know, if something's really interesting and I've started doing work and I think it's undervalued, you know, I, I may, and I, and I know it's a high quality business and it doesn't have that much downside, um, then, you know, I have no problem establishing a small, you know, starter position in a name and, and then doing more work because, you know, sometimes it may run away from you. Um, but, uh, so it's really company specific, but um, the monitoring process certainly occurs, you know, th- throughout the entire time. So then, so now I want to get into, you know, what's some of your, your buy criteria then, you know, rattle them off. What are, what are some of them, the things that you look for? Sure. Um, so on the, on the long side, I would say, you know, quality business with, with generally high returns on tangible and cast on tangible capital invested, um, tangible invested capital protected by a sustainable competitive advantage. That's sort of number one. You want a high, high quality business. Um, with you know high returns on capital that's sustainable through a mode. Uh, two, you know you'd want a multi-year growth runway with high incremental margins, uh, an incentivized management team with sound capital allocation, you know downside protection supported by strong balance sheet and/or normalized cash flow, you know a cyclical company trading at a trough multiple and trough margins, 
Um, you know, w- one thing we haven't talked about is, you know, the existence of a, a masking effect, which sort of hides value for most market participants. So, the, you know, it could be small, you know, in, in micro cap, you know, this goes to sort of the search process. I sort of search for these masking effects and then I see if they actually exist. And then finally, you know, a catalyst that will make price and value converge over time. So, you know, that's just a general list. And, you know, sometimes um, companies obviously won't fit all of the criteria. You know, you're not going to be a secular grower and a cyclical play, but those, those are some of the things I, I like to look for on the long side. Mm-hmm. So at what point then do you consider, um, you know, let's say you, you, you're now, you've been invested in a company for a long time. You know, at what point do you start considering when to sell? Sure. Uh, you know, I, I'm a lot more, um, uh, what's the right way to put it? I, I guess I'm a lot more specific on where I buy than when I sell. And the reason I say that is, you know, you don't want to fool yourself in the valuation process by selling a good company too early. This has probably been the single biggest mistake I've had um, in investing is you do all this work to put yourself in a good position on the search process side. You value the company you do the monitoring, the thesis on track, and you know it hits your price target, and you sell 100% of it, and it, then it goes up, you know, 5x more or even more. Um, you know, it's just a really terrible feeling, and um, for that reason, I think you know you have to. Uh, for me, I like to approach the selling process as more of an art than a science. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, I don't like to sell all at once generally. Um, you know, especially because if you've done a lot of work on a name, you understand it probably pretty well over time. And, you know, there could be opportunities to make money on in the future. So if you sell 100% of it, just, you know, take it off your list, stop following it, you could be missing an opportunity going forward. But if you're in high quality businesses, you generally want to be pretty patient. So uh, I generally try to sell once the company stops executing. Um, you know, I always have a price target. I always have a sense of where valuation is. You know, it's generally a range, not a single number. But um, I, I like to give more leeway to really great businesses that are executing because, you know, great businesses that can grow at high returns on tangible capital for a long period of time are very difficult to value with traditional metrics. That's why I'm trying to find them in the first place. And that's why it's hard to pinpoint their value. But they tend to surprise you to the upside over time. And for that reason, you want to be patient with them, but it's you know it'd be very different with say a cyclical company um, where you know you have a sense of where you are in the cycle, and uh, you know you, you you sort of hit your hit your price target. You think you might now be on the wrong side of the cycle. You know I, I'd be likely to sell that a lot earlier than I would a great company that maybe looks a little bit more expensive than it was when I bought, but is really executing. Mm-hmm. And so. Now, with all of that said, in terms of your investing philosophy and your, the overview that we went over here, you know, one thing I actually wanted to go back to at the very beginning, because I really want to make sure it's clear and we really understand this. And it's not so much on the high quality business side, you know, that, that I think we, we really ironed out <laughs> in, the, in this last bit, <laughs> last bit here. But it's really, you know, this idea of focusing on your downside. You know, this is something... You know, I've heard time and time again, you know, but for you, why, why is that so much more important than focusing on the upside? Well, I, I think, you know, for, for one, particularly in small and micro caps, um, th- there's almost always an exciting growth story that management will tell you, right? So if you're just going around talking to management teams and soaking up their stories and, you know, investing according to how exciting you think the upside is, that's, I think, a pretty dangerous way to invest. That being said, um, if you're, you know, if you're investing in sort of these these companies that have a lot of change and, um, you know, have a lot of optionality, I guess is one way to put it. But you have solid downside protection, and that could be through a lot of sources. One, you can size it bigger, right? You can have more conviction, size it bigger, because it's not going to blow you up. You can make it a 15% position, but if you can define the downside, you can get comfortable with that. So um, that's you know that's that's one thing. Number two is it's just really hard to come back from losses. Like the math, the the math makes it you know makes that the case. You know, it, it, you have to have a, a a bigger return after you've had a loss to sort of to get back to even. And um, so I think it's really important when you're investing in. You know, companies that are, are smaller, smaller micro caps that inherently have you know more upside if successful. 
to actually invert the process and say, okay, well, actually, let's focus on the downside first. Let's make sure we understand that because um, every every company has an exciting upside. You know, so, some obviously more than others, but it's really dangerous, I think, in the smaller microcap world to not think about downside and, and, and not give it the attention it deserves. And um, I, I would say most small microcap investors I speak to are a lot more focused on the upside than they are sort of sort of the risks. Um, so that, that that's that's my approach. And the last thing I, I'd add on this is, you know, smaller microcaps often have their own unique risk factors that maybe are not present or at least um, less prevalent in you know, mid and, and large caps. You know, for example, your companies may have extreme supplier concentration, right? They may they may um, only sell to a couple of different companies. They may only source from a couple of different places. Like it's really easy to gloss that over in the you know, in, in the 10K and say, oh, well, you know, they source it all from this one plant in Mexico. Well, what happens if that if that plant is, uh, <laughs> if something goes wrong with that plant? What happens if, you know, tariffs are enacted? Like, it's really important to understand these fine details on the downside because the upside often takes care of itself. Mm-hmm. I, one quick follow-up to that too is, you know, uh, what what's then, at least for you, what what's your risk threshold, you know? How how much potential downside can a company have that at that point you're like, eh, okay, I can't. This is too much. Sure. You know, there's no one answer because at sure. the end of the day, we're always evaluating risk reward. And so the relative proportion is what's most important. But, um, you know, I think it just as a good check on yourself. It's always it's always really helpful to focus on the downside first and make sure you really understand that uh, because often you can quantify it a little bit more easily than you can the upside, particularly in small companies that are growing quickly. Um, so you know, and, and it's also size dependent. You know, I might take a flyer on a company I think could be a 10x even if there's 100% downside, but it's it's never going to be a big position. It would be unlikely for that type of of uh, you know risk reward to be more than you know a one to two percent position. And my fund, because you know, you, you just can't risk you know, ten uh, percent of your capital on a on a ten to one bet if the one if the chance it goes you know belly up is is significant. Um, so you know, I think focusing on the downside it, it's it's is is really important. And I think you know, if I had to give a number, I mean, for maybe it's most helpful for like a fifteen percent position for a max position for me. You know, I would want to feel like. It would take an extraordinary set of circumstances to make that stock go down 40 to 50 percent. I mean, you know, a, a financial recession type of type of situation for that to occur. And ideally, the business would be resilient enough to to sort of um, handle that. Mm-hmm. OK, so, Connor, one of the other reasons that I, I wanted to speak with you today on the podcast is that you just recently founded Alta Fox Capital Management. You know, why did you decide to open up your own shop? Absolutely. You know, I've always been really fascinated by small and micro caps. Uh, I've had a passion for it. Uh, I find it fascinating. I enjoy the hunt. And, you know, I, I, I wanted, you know, a vehicle to express uh, exactly my investment philosophies. Uh, I wanted to be able to, you know, jump from one, you know, fascinating small cap to the next. And, um, you know, this was, this is my opportunity. So, um, you know, I, I've moved back to Texas where I'm from, which is great. And uh, I, I've launched AltaFox Capital. It's, it's primarily focused on small and micro cap companies. And, uh, you know, every day I'm just trying to get a little bit better, uh, refine my philosophy a little bit more and, you know, find the, the highest quality businesses I can at the lowest possible prices and ideally with uh, a lot of downside protection. Wait, you're not trying to buy high and sell low? I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, you know, it's happened before, but uh, no, that's not that's not the goal. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. So, so then, what what experience would you say either taught you the most about investing, or and or helped you towards defining your investing thesis? Sure. Um, I've had a lot of great resources and and people who helped me along the way, but you know, I would say the number one thing that really anyone can do that it really accelerated my learning from someone in high school who didn't know anything about investing to, you know, gaining competence uh, over time was, uh, you know, reading through the investment pitches of really successful investors. Um, and, and, you know, one way I did that, for example, is, you know, I, I printed off um, basically every company that had gone up 5x or more uh, on Value Investors Club, which, you know, is a site founded by one of 
the investors I really look up to, Joel Greenblatt, and I printed off every company that had gone up 5x or more, put them in a binder. Uh, and, you know, these ideas were going back to, I think, like 2002 or something, right, to all the way to recent ideas. So you had this very long time horizon, different markets, different circumstances, but you had a, a, a list of all these really successful investments from various investors. And um, even more, more than that, you had the comment threads over time for you know, the, uh, what other investors thought about it when they posted the idea as it developed over time. And I mean, to me, this was like a gold mine. This was an unbelievable resource because you know, you, you're able to study the, the, the great investments of, of others and you're able to develop pattern recognition by doing that for you know, what, what makes a successful setup. You know, people talk about the setup in an investment. Well, how do you develop that intuition uh, well, I, I suppose you can invest for 50 years and then develop intuition. Uh, but I think you can also get pretty close by studying a lot of really great investors who have already made, you know, uh, and a lot of really great investments in the past uh, and, and um, you know, unsuccessful ones as well, to be clear. Uh, it's important to study both. But, yeah, printing off, you know, all those value investor clubs ideas and and reading the comments was was really helpful for me to, to really accelerate my uh, my investing process. And then what, what advice, actually, before I ask that, of all the books that you read um, when you were first getting started in investing, what, what was your favorite one that really sparked your interest and really probably has the most, inf- well, I, I'm guessing the Joel Greenblatt book, right? Well, uh, that was one. yeah, <laughs> I would say definitely uh, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius by Joel Greenblatt was you know, a very formative book. I'd also say, you know, when I was initially getting started, I didn't know anything, you know, and if you're looking to, you know, get a book for someone who is maybe trying to start investing, um, you know, I I got the Motley Fool Investing Guide, which is, you know, more of a beginner book, but was a great introduction to investing. And, you know, I I owe the Motley Fool a lot for sparking my interest and, you know, eventually letting me intern there for for six months and you know they, they've, they've been tremendous and their online community fool.com was also really great as well so you know it depends you know how sophisticated you are of an investor in terms of what what book or advice i'd have but the motley fool was a great start for me you know reading value investors club i think really accelerated my knowledge and and um, made me more competent over time um and then you know just always always be learning always be talking to more experienced investors um but, you know, always critique ideas, too, though. You know, even the best investors in the world make mistakes um, a high percentage of the time, actually. And it's, it's really important that you always you develop your own view because there's so much knowledge out there today, uh, you know, where you can basically invest your capital based off of other people's ideas and never do any due diligence on your own. And I think that's that'd be a real shame because you'll never develop the intuition and ultimately you'll make you'll make a lot of mistakes because you're relying on other people's sort of research. So I would say you know number one, be an independent thinker. Um, you know, figure out how you want to invest, how you want to get an edge. Uh, number number two, you know, try to learn from obviously your own you know experiences, both successful and mistakes you've made. Uh, but three, accelerate your 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 growth by studying other people's you know successes and failures um, and then four you know jo- join an investment community it could be the motley fool it could be you know there are a lot of a lot of resources out there but join a community you know maybe get, purchase a newsletter um, uh, you know basically follow investors and ideas who know a little bit more than you and constantly ask questions and just improve every day nice. So I was going to ask you your advice for new microcap investors, but I feel like you just covered it. <laughs> you yeah. Know? But I mean, if there's anything else that you wanted to add that you think for at least on the, for, for new investors, you know, what, what else do you think? Um, what other advice you, would you give them? Yeah, I mean, look, I think microcapclub.com is a great resource as well. There are a lot of really smart investors on there that, you know, you can follow and articles you can read as well. Um, you know, I think... Um, another cool thing that investors can do is find these small companies that are local to you, um, you know, that are in your area, you know, search for smaller microcap companies based in your hometown or in your sort of metroplex or whatever. And, you know, try to analyze them and maybe meet with them, you know, talk to their management team, maybe visit their headquarters. You know, a lot of these small companies, you can do that. Or, you know, maybe it's a restaurant chain, go to the restaurant, try to figure out really what's going on. I think it's really important for investors uh, who are just starting, even who are you know really early in their sort of investing journey, to 
dig into a company as much as they can. And their ability to dig into that company will expand over time as they learn more about investing and sort of acquire more skills. But do the best you can and, you know, build a simple model. And even if it's just an income statement, try to understand, you know, the various cost structure, the drivers and the, and the revenue drivers and, you know, follow, even if it's just one company in your local area, that can be a cool way to sort of, you know, dip your toe in the water of investing and, and start doing your own original research because there's really no substitute for it. Mm-hmm. So, Connor, where can my audience go and find more information about you and Alta Fox Capital Management? Absolutely. Um, so, you know, I occasionally post research um, on my website, altafoxcapital.com, A-L-T-A-F-O-X capital.com. Uh, you can also sign up for, uh, you know, my, my newsletter there as well. I, I send out quarterly letters and occasional investment ideas. Um, so that would be the place to go. Cool. And uh, can we follow you on Twitter as well? Do you have a handle? Absolutely. It's at altafoxcapital. A-L-T-A-F-O-X capital, right? Correct. Keep it as simple for you. Nice. So, Connor, I want to thank you so much for joining us today on on the Planet Microcap podcast, and uh, yeah, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks a lot. It was a real pleasure. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Thank you all for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast, and thank you, Connor, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast. Go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap Podcast or on iTunes and search Planet Microcap Podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap Podcast where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of stocknewsnow.com, the official microcap news source, and the microcap review magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week, everyone.